Thanks for downloading and listening to the Know and Do podcast. My name is Justin Barton, and before starting this conversation, I recently had with Rusty Wisbowski called Life is Long. I want to share a little bit about the Know and Do podcast. One of the goals of the Know and Do podcast is to speak with people who have experienced life, both the ups and downs, and are willing to share some of that wisdom earned and learned with those who are walking that same path behind them. My hope is that something from each of these conversations touches the heart of each listener and motivates them to do just one small thing a little bit better. This change of heart has the potential to help each person become a bit better. And when the individual becomes better, it kind of snowballs into a place where the entire world can become a little bit uh, better of a place. This is one reason I feel it is important to strive to develop wisdom by talking to real people with real experiences both positive and painful. And this is what the Know and Do uh, podcast is all about. Now I have a few more of these conversations lined up, but I'm always looking for more people with life lessons and wisdom learned and earned that are willing to share with me and the listening audience of Know and Do. The ideal conversation would be with someone who is more likely nearer to the end of his or her life than the beginning and has a story to tell and is willing to share the good and the not so good so that others can learn from their experiences. These conversations are also hoped to be a kind of legacy where the person involved can impart some of their more important thoughts and philosophies and lessons learned, along with some experiences that may have not yet been heard uh, by their children or grandchildren, and then so they can pass that on down the line for generations to come. So if you know anybody that fits this description, or perhaps you may fit this description, and... uh, that person or you would be willing to have a recorded conversation with me, please email me at knowanddopodcast at gmail.com and let me know. We can then start the process of getting it set up. Now, if you found Know and Do Podcast to be of value to you, please share it with your family and friends. Also, subscribe to it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please rate and review us on that same service. You may also follow Know and Do on Facebook Just search Know and Do and like us and leave a note to us to let us know what you like most or what you'd love to hear in the future. Now let's go on to the conversation I had with Rusty Wisbowski. You will quickly notice that the sound quality is fairly low on this conversation. It was a great conversation with fantastic content, so I hope you can overlook the AM radio type sound to get to the content. We had to do this conversation over a phone call and the quality you can tell is that but once again look past the quality of the recording and look into the quality of the content and i think you will find some things that are very powerful and meaningful now rusty is somebody that i've known for many years he was in my church congregation growing up and in this conversation he will share some of the experiences he had as a child and a youth and as an adult and a parent Uh, Many of those being within the framework of being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I think that we can all learn some good insights from this. Now, one of the things he says in this conversation that I found very interesting is the phrase, life is long. And I think as we go through this, you might be able to put together something that makes some sense there. So often we hear that life is short. 
but I think after listening to this, we can say life is long. So please enjoy this conversation as you do yard work or drive or work or whatever you're doing. All right. So, so Rusty, tell me a little bit about who you are today, kind of what you do, some hobbies you have, um, the work you do and what your next plans in life are. So um, I own a, uh, an installation company that handles the installation of window coverings, not windows, but draperies and blinds, everything that goes on a window on the inside of the house, except shutters. Uh, I've run the business uh, for 40 years. It was originally called A&R, uh, which was April and Rusty. She got top billing. And then she got, and, and at that time, she wasn't actually part of the business because I was a contractor to Montgomery Wards in the early days and then to Sears for a period of time. And they did all, most of the scheduling and things. And then the business model for my kind of business changed. And April accidentally got sucked into the business <laughs> to support what I was doing. She was doing scheduling and billing and all that kind of stuff and never got any credit for it. In the real world, people said, oh, you get to stay home. You're a housewife. And she said, yeah, I get to stay home and I'm a housewife and I work eight hours a day for my husband. <laughs> so she's an amazing person and think we couldn't have done what we've done with it um, without her. We had to change the name when we became an LLC because they already had a company called A&R Installations in Arizona. Hmm. So we changed the name to A&A. &A. My first name is actually Alan. Oh. So we, we went to Allen and April, or actually it's April and Allen installation. And we've been that for the last 15 years. Uh, my son is my partner in the business. Uh, I'm at nearing the end of my time in the business. Uh, I'm actually planning to retire in 35 months. Mm. And uh, we'll see how that goes. We thought early in our, or late in our professional lives that we probably never would retire. Mm. That we would be just like farmers. We would die in the field behind the plow. Mm. But as it turned out, uh, we've been very fortunate in the business since Steve's become a part of it. We've grown and uh, it looks like I'll actually be able to retire. Steve basically runs the business now. Uh, really 95% of everything that happens in the business, he does. I'm a support system now. I'm not out of the business yet, but I'm kind of semi-retired. We're an installation company, so I do almost 99% measuring now. Very little installing. We have about 10 full-time uh, installers that work for us in Tucson and in uh, Phoenix. And we handle stores as far away as Yuma. So, Wow. So, uh, and, and you've grown from it being just you, basically, to now you've got 10 full-time installers and installers, you know, huh? are, are running it to help it continue to grow, huh? Yeah. So... That's what we have done. Of course, a great thing about having, running your own business is that uh, you're your own boss. Now, there's it's a two-edged sword if you've been around people. When you own a business and run the business, it means that everybody that you work with is your boss. Mm -hmm. uh, the smallest clerk and the smallest store and the tiniest account that we've ever had, if that person was upset with us in some way, it affects your business. Mm. They can they can guide people away from you. They can you know. So basically, any request from any person that's connected to any of the accounts that you have is your boss. Uh, there are some parameters, and you work out the details with people that you work with long term. But it's an interesting thing. The thing that you do have when you're in business for yourself is absolute control of your time. 
So the most important thing in my life has always been my family. So I can say with pride, although I wish I had stayed in school, and we can talk about that at some point, Mm -hmm. but we ran a very successful business for 40 years. And during that period of time, we've had struggles financially and different things have happened. You know, economies go up and down. But I have never missed a parent-teacher conference. Mm. I've never missed a child's activity. Mm. I've never missed a grandchild's activity because I have absolute control of my time. So we were able to to do that. Uh, doesn't make us, you know, I mean, we're not, I'm not saying that in a boastful way. It's just something that we always, that was more important to us than any account that we had or anything we had to do. Usually we took care of both things, but if it came between, you know, hey, listen, I'm going to miss this because I got to do that. Mm -hmm. We didn't. Wow. And that's great that you were able to set those parameters and ground rules for yourself early. So many people, and I, I could see myself becoming one of those if I was owning my own business like yours, thinking that, hey, I've got to get this done and it might take priority over uh, a baseball game or something like that, you know, but I'm sure. that's really awesome that you were able to do that. Yeah, I had uh, a good friend of mine one time ask me, he says, how can you possibly be in business for yourself? And he says, I had this great job and I've got security and benefits and all of these wonderful things. And and I explained to him that we really didn't have a choice. He was a very educated man. I said, you know, you made a lot of right choices. I made these choices and now this is where I am. And I'm really too far along to maybe at least I feel like I can't go back to school and do those things. So, so we stay with this. And about a year later, he was laid off Mm. and he came back to me and he said, so now how do you do a business for yourself? (laughs) And he went into a very successful business for himself. And later on he says, well, both things have their ups and downs, but he said, it is nice to be in, at least be in charge of myself. So, wow. I'm interested. Yeah. So, so you became a mentor of sorts in that situation. Very cool. <laughs> We're all far from a mentor, but at least a, a bad example, right? Right, right. I, I, I don't have any big hobbies. Uh, we committed to a boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one special thing that we thought we could have in our lives. And we had a boat for about 25 years and almost all of the activities of my family and my own personal activities revolved around that boat. So a boat is kind of like being in business for yourself. You know, this got us high points and this low points. Our vacations, because we had already, we were spending money each month on the boat and taking care of it and so forth. We literally have been up to Canyon Lake a thousand times Wow! with our, with our children. And, and of course with their friends and with the scouts and, you know, right. so we, it was a big part of what we did, you know, Lake Powell, we, we spent a week at Lake Powell for the last 25, the last half, a quarter of a century. Hmm. So all boat related. Uh, but other than that, and I don't golf, although I am planning to take golf lessons someday. Sometime <laughs> I better do it pretty soon or I won't be a chance. I do play <laughs> golf, but not well. well so that gives you a thumbnail of who I am. So, Now, Rusty, tell me a little bit about your birth and early childhood. Tell me a little bit about your family uh, dynamic and, and, and your parents and, and siblings. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I was born in 1949 uh, in Ogden, Utah. The war had ended uh, four years earlier. I lost two uncles in World War II. Two of my mom's brothers were killed in World War II. Um, One of the older brothers, when the younger brothers went into the army, actually three of the younger brothers went in and 
the oldest brother, my, my mom's oldest brother, my uncle John, was too old to go into the service. But he told them when they went into the service, he says, we have to support our country. And you're going into the service. But I promise you, when you come back, there'll be some place for you. Because this was at the, the Depression had just ended uh, six years before because of the beginning of World War II. And so forth. So Uncle John moved his family to California where the opportunities were greater. The two brothers were lost in World War II. The one younger brother, Uncle Lee, the closest brother to my mom, came home. And by then, John had a successful carpet business or something down in Southern California, I think in Linwood. I'm not sure exactly, but I think it was near Los Angeles. And basically, the whole family moved from Ogden to Southern California. My mom and my dad, uh, my dad, not a brother to Uncle John, but uh, when the brothers got together, they expanded the business shortly after everybody got there into the construction business. And my dad could work construction, so he went to work for them. And, and Verna's husband, my mom's sister, went to work for them. So basically, the whole family moved to Southern California to get jobs and to work and so forth. So my mom and my dad divorced when I was five years old. And uh, my last name, my birth name is not Wisbowski, it's Pulsifer. Hmm. And so I was Rusty Pulsifer. And my mom had me and my brother and divorced from, from Alan. And she needed to work, but she also needed to take care of us. Mm-hmm. So she, she went and got a job as a waitress and could see that that was not going to work at all. So she worked at night waiting tables. And during the day, she went to work for a seamstress. And she worked for the seamstress for three months and then opened up a business called Shirley Stevens Custom Draperies. Mm. And that's Mm. when I was six years old because she could make drapes in our house and babysit us at the same time. So she would make drapes for other people. Other people would sell drapes. And then my mom would make them and she could be there with us. And the business expanded. So where then she was selling the drapes and then making her own drapes. And she ran a very successful business in Laguna Beach, California, is where she finally ended up. That's where I was raised. And she had eight girls that worked for her making the drapes that she was selling. Because of the nature of the business, she never missed any of our activities. Mm-hmm. She was at every little league game. Every Now, my mom was inactive in the church. And Alan was too. They, I look back now, we realize looking back that she was a rascal and Alan was a rascal from a very, very devout family. All of my grandmother's children, except my mom, were, were married in the temple. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom was inactive. All of Alan's brothers and sisters were married in the temple, Pulsifer, but he was inactive. So they got divorced. My mom remained inactive, but my brother and I, we were completely active. We went to primary, we went to Sunday school, we went to sacrament meeting, unless the surf was up. So let me stop you there before you talk about surfing with that. Why did you choose or why did your mom choose to send you to primary and, and, and activities? You know, my mom, my mom loved the church. She was never angry with the church. She was angry with her mother. Mm-hmm. Her mother was a very stiff-necked a Dutch woman who joined the church in the early 1900s when she was eight years old and with her family and they emigrated to uh, the great salt lake shortly thereafter and she was a very devout actually so devout that she's legendary 
in the family. I mean, that literally hardly anybody ever heard her speak of anything of the gospel. Huh. And she did soften in her later years, but um, she was very, my mom was the youngest of eight. The eight children were raised in very poor. They were very poor. It was during the Depression. They did not have running water in the house till my mom was a senior in high school. Wow. Um, so that's carrying water from a well, cooking over a, a fire in the beginning, and then a wood-burning stove and, and those kind of things. So a, a difficult life. And when my mom came along, yeah, Grandma Stevens had already raised, she was the youngest of eight. She was real tired and real stern, and my mom was a little bit wild. And they just crossed, and, I, you know, finally, I think, my mom just said, I'm not doing this anymore. And so, so she, so she wasn't active, but she was, uh, she always re- would receive the ward teachers and, mm-hmm. and uh, she wanted us to be close to the church. She would come to church on occasion when we were speaking or if we had an activity where there was something that she needed to see. But we were, we graduated from seminary, my brother and I, we, we were completely active. I didn't go to, um, very much mutual because mutual met on Tuesday nights back in those days. Mm-hmm. And Tuesday nights are when sports teams, uh, mm-hmm. when your basketball teams play on Tuesday night, tennis teams play on Tuesday night. And I played football, basketball, and tennis in high school. Mm-hmm. So I did go to mutual when I could. So in any event, I was active, but yeah, not my mom. Ahead. Yeah. And you mentioned that unless the surf was up. So it sounds like you really liked surfing. Tell, tell me about that. Well, let me let me tell you the reason. My mom thought that three hours of church was enough for anybody, and that was Sunday school and a priesthood meeting in those days. Mm-hmm. So you went to pre, you went to priesthood meeting at nine in the morning, then you went home, and you came back for Sunday school at ten thirty to twelve, and then we went home, and then sacrament meeting was at six o'clock or five o'clock, depending if it was daylight savings time or not, mm-hmm. and that was for an hour and a half in the evening. So when, once we've gone to church for three hours, my mom said, you can go to sacrament meeting if you want to, or you can go to the beach if you want to. <laughs> so, and you know, I often chose to go to the beach in those days. So and I was not really much of a surfer. I was, I did surf, uh, but surfers, when I was young, surfers were akin to a motorcycle gang in today's yeah. genre. Okay. They, they were a tougher crowd. They almost all smoked and you know, they were kind of, you know, Nowadays, if you surf, you just surf, you know, it's mm-hmm. like there's Hell's Angels and there's people who ride motorcycles. Well, back in those days, there was Hell's Angels and surfers. Mm-hmm. And then the good kids didn't do those things. Well, I did surf and I didn't do those things that mm-hmm. the other ones were doing. But my mom really discouraged it. Body surfing was really what we did all the time, me and all of my friends. Cause, and then in, on beach towns during the summer, you can only surf in certain places during certain hours because mm-hmm. of the tourists. But you can body surf anytime. So most of us body surfed. I would say 95% of the time I body surfed. And literally, I was down at the beach every day. Mm-hmm. From The only thing that kept me off the beach is with sports. Well, really cool. So tell me, I mean, at some point, your name changed to Wisbowski. Okay, so my mom met a man who was in the Marine Corps, Dan Wisbowski. Very, very nice man. Uh, they met each other when I was seven or eight. Mm-hmm. and dated for two or three years and then married when I was nine or 10. Because mm-hmm. by the time I was 12, Stan had now been married to my mom for a couple of years. And he was a really good man who was Catholic. He was a, a career Marine. 
he was a staff sergeant, which is the highest type of sergeant you can be in the Marine Corps and have gunnery and all those things. Those are in the other services. But as a staff sergeant, he was a cook. That was his MOS. So he cooked. And then he, when he went through the ranks, he became the a staff sergeant and he ran the officers club at El Toro Marine Base. That's so, I don't know if you're familiar with anything about the military, but officers clubs are very special places. Right. Lots of perks for the officers. Mm-hmm. And literally the sergeants are basically saluted by the generals. Mm-hmm. I mean, the general comes in and they give deference to the sergeant who's running the, mm-hmm. you know, so I mean, yeah, this is a very, very, pre- so my dad was not an educated man, but he went to, he had gotten his, uh, his high school diploma because he joined before he graduated from high school through the military. And then he took all of the, the college classes he needed to satisfy the things they wanted him to do to be a staff sergeant. And then he was as successful as you can be in the military without being an officer. And he was, and they married and he was good. He helped us. He act was like a dad and, and we called him dad. And at 12, you can make the decision. And my mom wanted to wait till we were 12. He petitioned to adopt us and because mm-hmm. yeah, we, we could decide. And, and we did, and we were adopted uh, and then changed our name from Pulsifer to Wisbowski, which was quite a deal. It was a crazy world. So <laughs> my mom, however, did not change her name because she was Shirley Stevens Custom Draperies. Yeah. And, and so she needed to keep her last name. At least she felt she did. It, it turned out to be something that was very divisive in the family because people used to call him Mr. Stevens. Oh. And, you know, proud Polish Catholic yeah. guy. That didn't really go over too well. So that's how the name change came. Okay. And what were your emotions and thoughts about that at the time? I mean, you're a 12-year-old kid. Um, you're starting to get into the teenage rebellious phases and, hey, I know what's best for me. Parents, you don't know much about that. You know, you may or may not have been that way, but what were your thoughts with that name change and all these changes with your family dynamic? I was thrilled. It was one of the happiest days of my life. Mm. I finally had somebody that was my dad. Wow. Now, Stan had been my dad, but so I never knew my, my, my real dad. He, he turned out to be a bad man. Mm. the kind of bad man that ended up in prison eventually. Mm-hmm. And she uh, agreed to the adoption. My mom was in touch with him. He never paid any alimony. There was no visitation. He basically did some physical abuse to my mom and, oh. and he was thrown in. She never wanted, no wanted anything from me, wanted to hear from him. And he did, it would never came into our lives again. I did see him one time when Angie was born. He bumped into my mom at one of our football games because apparently he was, he knew who we were. We just didn't know who he was. But my mom had never preached against him. You know, we weren't, I wasn't angry with him. He just wasn't in my mind. I I think it, I I might mention here, my mom was seriously, and I I mean this, it was no, uh, everybody has great moms. Right. My mom was, my mom was seriously the greatest mom in the world. So she was strong and proud and kind and gentle. She was firm and loving. We had, in our family, there was, a, it was a very, lots of kissing and hugging. You know, we, when we came into a room, if we, had been, we were coming home from someplace, we always kissed my mom, hello. 
And when we were leaving to go anywhere, we kissed my mom goodbye. Mm. And that, that continued until I was out of high school. Mm. And the reason was she was raised in a stiff Dutch home where there was very little emotion. Mm. And she often lamented that she never remembers her dad ever saying that he loved her. And he did. And she loved him. And, and he loved her. But mm. he, she never heard those words. She never got a kiss from him or from grandma. And she said, that's not the kind of life I'm living. Mm. I want there to be friendship and physical uh, affection and so forth. And so when we were little grandbabies, she said, when you go to grandma's house, remember that you give grandma a kiss and grandpa a kiss. Hello and goodbye, just like we do at our houses. And they were very resistant in the beginning to that happening because they had never been hugged and kissed by anybody. And the rest of the family was too afraid of them to do anything about it. Well, my mom said, well, she wasn't afraid of it. She'd already rebelled and she was running her successful business and they were proud of her and she still loved them. So we just kissed all over them and, <laughs> and they changed. <laughs> but anyway, so my mom had a way of my brother and I, and I'm not sure that there's some things that are innate uh, personalities that you have. Each one of my children had different personalities when they were born. We influenced them in some way, but they were who they were when we got them. We were the way we were when we might. So I don't know exactly how much my mom had to do with this, but I give her all of the credit and the blame. Mm. And there's really very little blame because wow. we felt so loved, even though our house was not a normal nuclear family, you know, there was no dad in the house. Mm -hmm. We did everything. We had all the things that every kid had, even though there wasn't lots of money. And the, the feeling that I had with my life was literally, I felt like it was perfect. Mm. I mean, I had responsibilities, you know, as a young man, because my mom worked, we cooked breakfasts and dinners and we knew how to cook from the time I was nine years old, I could cook. Uh, we cleaned the house. I knew how to completely clean the house because that was our job. We were expected to work. We worked with my mom down at her business doing things that would help her clean up and do things. And we had jobs and responsibilities and we had lots of playtime and the family, extended family. So I didn't feel like anything was missing in my life except that I didn't have somebody that I could call dad. Hmm. So when it came time, when I was 12 years old, I mean, I, here I was, what I thought was an idyllic life, even though I was missing a dad. And now I had a dad and it was even better. Wow. And we did lots of fun stuff together. And I did lots of things as a teenager that my mom didn't know I was doing. Mm -hmm. But it was not uh, the typical, you know, my mom and I never butted heads and my mom never butted heads with my brother. You just didn't, but my mom was very strong. You didn't butt heads with her. Mm. She, she had a way of disciplining. The worst thing she could say to you, to us, was... Rusty, I am so disappointed in you that you would have done this thing. And there were things that occasionally I did that I needed to be, you know, reprimanded for. Her way of reprimanding was basically that. Uh, if there was retribution, it was not physical, it was mental. Mm -hmm. And there was a certain period of time where you knew you need to walk on eggshells. And I'm not sure why we walked on eggshells because we weren't afraid of her. But that one thing, because she had a way of, you know, I mean, we loved each other. We trusted each other. And if we did something that disappointed her, I mean, that was crushing to us. When I was a little boy playing football, 
nine years old, I got my two front teeth kicked out in a football game. I went down and guy jumped over my head and his foot followed and kicked, knocked my two front teeth out. Mm -hmm. So I had to, and my mom didn't have any money. We didn't have dentistry like you do now. So they put these two silver caps on my teeth, on my two front teeth. They're stainless steel. And the thought was that they would put the stainless steel caps on until I was 18 when my mouth stopped growing. And then they would do the fancy stuff and put some white teeth in for me. Okay. So I lived my whole uh, life from 10 years old on with these silver teeth. You know how kids, kids can kid you and do yeah. stuff? Never phased me because my mom said, look, this is no big deal. Doesn't define who you are. Be good natured about it. And if somebody wants to make fun of you, join in, which That's I learned to do. That's awesome outlook. I mean, that's something that I yeah. could see myself being very self-conscious about. You know, the first time somebody made fun of me and called me, you know, whatever, metal mouth, which, you know, braces. Exactly. Like <laughs> under my skin, but that's really cool. How, and you attribute you being able to roll with those punches to what how, what your mom told you and how she told you to react? Because we thought we were princes. We thought you do these things and I love you so much and you're, I'm so proud of what you're doing in school and do the right and choose the right. And there was a lot of moral teaching. I mean, these are things that, that we do because we're, and then we were pulsifers, you know, yeah. because you're a pulsifer. This is how the pulsifers handles things. And then we were Wazowski's, how the Wazowski's handle things, you know? So we were very confident and I attribute that to her. My brother and I were, so I was, you know, I'm not large of stature, but I did grow pretty quickly. So I was always one of the bigger kids in school. My birthday is in January, so I was one of the oldest kids in school. Hmm. So uh, we both uh, loved athletics. I was the best athlete in elementary school, hmm. bar none. Yeah, I was. I was known. When I got into junior high school, I was one of the best athletes in junior high school. When I got to high school, I was a three-sport letterman, you know, high school football, basketball, and I was the captain of my high school tennis team. Just a very good athlete. And I made a college basketball team after my mission, hmm. after to Ricks. Yeah. So because of that, because athletics were so important to us, I also played baseball, in Little League Baseball and Babe Ruth Baseball. Mm -hmm. In California, volleyball is a very big sport. Mm -hmm. I was probably the best volleyball player in our high school. You know, that kind of stuff. I was not a great athlete. I was just a really good athlete. And so we gained a lot of confidence from that. My brother was twice the athlete I was. Mm. He played major college football. He was the high school athlete of the year in Orange County, the year wow. he graduated from high school. He was a three-sport, all-county player in every sport he played. Wow. And he went and played for the University of Washington. He actually got some interest from the pros. He was a kicker. But the reason I bring this up isn't to talk about athletic prowess because you've seen me. <laughs> and and I, I, I probably did more with my body, the high school, elementary high school, years than anybody, you know, because I was very tenacious. I was very fast. Mm -hmm. I was very tough. My brother was faster and tougher and everything that I was, but we gained a lot of confidence from that. Mm -hmm. And my mom allowed us to do those things. And, 
you know. So I attribute the confidence to my mom's, her moral-centered, family-oriented, do the right thing. And when you do those things, you do gain confidence because people see what you're doing and they, and, and then the sports part of it, I think that's where that came from. So um, as a youth, did you have like a childhood hero or, you know, a sports hero or a superhero, whatever it may be that you really looked to and tried to emulate? Mm. No, no, no. I loved all sports. I loved uh, all of the California sports. I'm from, you know, was uh, very aware of all of the professional athletes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess my favorite ball player was probably Steve Garvey. He was a first Mm -hmm. baseman for the Dodgers for about 20 years, (laughs) forever and ever, but not, not in particular in that regard. Well, I had people that were my, were my coaches that uh, were, had an influence on me. Um, Tell me about your favorite coach and what influence that coach had on you. Well, I guess my favorite would have been Mr. Lisko. And Mr. Lisko was my high school history teacher. And he was also my seminary teacher. That we had a very small, our seminary included uh, the towns of San Clemente and Newport Beach. So people drove from San Clemente six miles south of us and with Corona del Mar six miles to the north of us to meet in our building in Laguna Beach for early morning seminary. And uh, I think that we all met together. There were in individual classes. There were about 20 of us. And Mr. Lisko was the only LDS member of the church and on the high school staff. And he taught our seminary class. He was my C football coach. So that's what I played. The way football works there is height, weight, and age. You factor those things together and at certain points you play C, B, or you go into the varsity. Mm -hmm. And so I was light and and young. So he was my football coach when I went into high school. And Mm -hmm. football was my favorite sport by by far. I mean, I love football more than anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lots of football. Like I said, I got my teeth kicked out playing football. It was all flag football. But Mr. Lisko taught me to drive through the barriers that were in my way to be successful in sports. So when you get to that level, there are people who are bigger and stronger than you who Mm -hmm. can knock you down. And getting knocked down was no problem and getting up was no problem and going back at it was no problem because I had a very tenacious personality. But he did influence me to to say, look, the only thing that's stopping you from doing this is you. And that's because you have put limitations on yourself, uh, probably without even knowing it. And he did help me see my potential. And that was very important to me. I can remember that moment. You can remember the very moment when he taught you that. It's kind of, it was on the football field. Mm-hmm. and. It was pretty frustrating, something, a situation that, uh, so you you have a a situation where you're going one-on-one against people, kind of a bull in a ring kind of a situation. Mm -hmm. And so I had taken several very vicious blows and was was down. And he, in a calm way, came over and said to me, you can give up right now or you can push through what's going on and you'll be a better football player if you do that. Hmm. And it taught me a lesson that a lot of times getting knocked down is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Hmm. 
not getting back up is sometimes the worst thing that can happen to you. We get knocked yeah. down many times. So, Yeah. So, so I want to talk a little bit about that. Has that moment where, and I'm just picturing it in my mind's eye, it may look different in the real life, but I'm picturing you laying there on your back on the ground, your coach walking over to you, looking down at you and saying, son, you can quit right now or you can get up and push through it. And you got up and pushed through it. Has that teaching come to you, not just in sports, but in life when you felt knocked down at a time? Yeah, you know, uh, there's been hundreds of times as a businessman and a, and a father mm-hmm. where I was laying in the dust mm-hmm. and completely unsure about what my next step should be or what it could be or you know, even if I wanted to take the step, if I could take it. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, yeah, I, I was very confident that if I just kept pressing forward, things would be fine. Okay. And not in a way, I mean, I never, I, I have never had a defeated feeling. And never. I've had times when I was unsure mm-hmm. about what was going to happen, but I knew if we worked hard, that everything would work out fine. So you've never had the thought of, I'm just giving up. This is, this is not. This well, I've changed directions. I've tried, I've changed directions a time or two, but they were changes of direction because I felt like we needed to have a change of direction. Mm-hmm. So I, I did some things professionally before I started my company mm-hmm. and the, the way I started my company was completely accidental, but I never had a defeated feeling about it. Like, like I said, Justin, then this is the honest truth. I gained a testimony early, early, early in my life. And the most important thing to me was the Savior. And all of the other things that could happen to me were just part of the deal. You know, I mean, my mom taught me that, you know, she started a business, divorced with two kids and nothing. And she started a business. And believe me, that was something that I viewed and watched and admired. And I said, well, that's how you handle life. You take whatever's given to you. Sometimes it's things that you're given because you made certain choices and maybe they weren't the right choices. But where you are is where you are and where you're going to be is where what you do next will take you. Do, do you recall, I mean, you mentioned that you gained a testimony of the Savior at a young age. Do you remember that experience in your life when that happened? You know, I wish I could remember why. So as a young man, and I'm not sure exactly, and I wish I could pinpoint this, but I don't have a a really great recollection of my early childhood. Somewhere early on, the teaching that we are the only true church on the face of the earth was impressed on me. And this will sound again, I I hope it doesn't sound self-serving, but when, when I was a young man, I'm a person who, for whatever reason, always pays attention. So if I'm in a schoolroom situation and a teacher's talking, I look at the teacher and I pay attention. And I was taught by my mom that I should do that. The authority figures were important and listen to what they're telling you and follow their directions, those kind of things. But my own personality was to pay attention. In Sunday school class, literally, I would many times remember as a, as a young man, young boy, saying, you guys be quiet and listen. She's trying to teach a lesson (laughs) to other people. Mm -hmm. I would never talk while a teacher was teaching a lesson. Mm -hmm. When someone talks in sacrament meeting, 
I might fall asleep because I'm an old man, <laughs> but I paying attention as I drift off. So, so I'm not sure exactly what had happened, but with my friends, so, so my brother and I were very close to one another. You know, we were close in age. We had similar interests. We loved each other. I beat him up quite a bit because I like to be the boss. And sometimes he wanted to see, see if he was the boss. And so I did that kind of stuff. I was not the best brother, but, but nobody else beat my brother up. Mm. I mean, I would protect him. And, and one of the reasons he was such a great athlete, I really believe this was because he was a little bit bigger for his age than he was mm-hmm. than the other kids. And so we were pretty close to the same size. So he used to play sports with me and my friends who we were very athletic. So when he went back and played with his friends, it was like, he went from playing with the big boys to the little boys again, and he was just a great athlete in that regard. So we were playing. We were playing, and I was – I'm trying to think. I was eight, and Steve was six, and the boys down the street were the, the Cruz brothers, and Tony Cruz, he was nine. So he was nine. I was eight. His brother – I can't remember his brother's name, uh, but he was seven, and my brother was six. Mm-hmm. So – I was the boss of my brother. Tony was the boss of his brother. Tony was bigger than I was and pretty tough. And so, you know, he was really the boss of me too, because I was little, uh-huh. littler than he was. And he was a Catholic and he knew we were Mormons. And one day we were out having some kind of a disagreement about something. And he said to me, well, you know that you're going to hell, right? And I said, what do you mean I'm going to hell? And he says, well, if you're not Catholic, you're going to hell. Anybody that's not a Catholic goes to hell. And I said, well, you know, that doesn't sound like a very good thing. I think I'm going to fight you over this. Hmm. <laughs> and because you're telling me I'm going to hell. So we did. We had a battle. We, we, we really battled each other because he told me I was going to go to hell, you know. So I came home and talked to my mom, you know, afterwards. And I think I lost the fight. I think that was the last fight I ever lost. Hmm. I mean, didn't get in many fights, but. That was, but I think Tony was pretty, pretty big at that time. But he came over to my mom and I said, now, are we going to hell? And I kind of, I knew the Joseph Smith story and I knew that, you know, that kind of stuff. But we were in this little isolated area. I didn't really know very much stuff. So my mom explained to me what, what the deal was. She said, no, you're not going to hell. Um, that's not how that works. And there isn't a place where fire burns and all that kind of stuff. And we get to keep the commandments. My mom understood the basic teachings of the church. And mm-hmm. so we talked about that. But I already knew that Tony was the one who was wrong, that there was a prophet and that the Pope wasn't it, Uh and that the prophet is who you listen to. I'm not sure exactly where I gained that testimony, but it was firmly entrenched so that every friend that I had knew I was a Mormon, knew that the church, uh, that we believed we were the only true church on the face of the earth, um, and that they should be Mormons. But, but they didn't hold that against me because right. I didn't make it like the only thing. I remember Robert Renfrew saying to me one time, he said, of all the names in the world, you Mormons couldn't figure, think of a better name for your prophet than Joe Smith. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. <laughs> and I said, well, his name isn't Joe Smith. It's Joseph Smith. And he saw God the Father, Robert. And so we do and follow his, what he said because God restored the church through him. So down on the beach, even when I was in high school, uh, my friends, I was kind of called, known as the preacher, because if anybody wanted to talk philosophically about religion, I was definitely 
I was very aware of other religions and all of that kind of stuff. So where exactly that came from, I don't know. But uh, it has been firm and with me since uh, every moment of my remembered life. So that kind of leads into the next thing that I want to talk about a little bit. Your your young adult mission, uh, starting a family, meeting April, so on and so forth. So, I mean, you were known as the preacher on the beach. I'm assuming that you had in mind from a fairly young age, hey, I'm going to go on a mission. Tell me about that decision and then a little bit about your mission. So, um, so I, I'm not sure that I really, so missions weren't talked about in the same way that they are now. I mean, you know, when you were a young man, we made sure that you heard many times that it was your responsibility to go on a mission, Mm -hmm. but that was not the case when I was raised in the the ward I was in. Mm -hmm. I was a good ward. But I don't think anybody had been on a mission from our ward 10 years, the 10 years previous to me going. Okay. So it wasn't like there was a long legacy of people that were going on missions and so forth. In my extended family, I only had one of my cousins who had served a mission that I was aware of that was going on a mission. That was Dale. So there wasn't a lot of talk about it, but I really really loved the church and I really, really, really wanted to get married and have a family and go to the temple. So at age 16, I, I mean, I, I had a girlfriend who would join the church, but her mother wouldn't let her. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it wasn't like it was, you know, so, I mean, we talked about the church. I said, well, someday if we should ever get married, I, I will only marry you if you're LDS. Mm -hmm. And so that we can go to the temple, but never did the idea of a mission really enter my mind Mm -hmm. until I got to be, oh, maybe a senior in high school. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't like the bishop called me in. I am not sure exactly if I went to the bishop and said, I, I think I should serve a mission. Now I knew what missions were. My grandpa had served a mission. My grandpa Pulsifer, he, he served his mission without purse or script. So he went, he went on a mission where he just walked out the door and, you know, nobody sent him a check every month. You lived on whatever you could, could live on when you were in the mission field and had a very successful mission. And so that was the pulse of her grandpa. My grandpa Stevens on my mom's side had not served a mission. Mm-hmm. Only one of her brothers had served a mission. That was her brother Dale, my uncle Dale. And he was the one that was killed, one of the ones that was killed in World War II. Mm. So, but anyway, somehow... My bishop, Bishop Perrine, somehow said, this is what you need to do. And uh, everybody then in high school knew I was going to serve a mission from about the time I was, maybe it was my junior year okay. that I was going to serve a mission. And in any event, I decided then to go on a mission. My mom did not discourage me, but she did not encourage me. If you want to go, that's fine, and we will support you. And, uh, but if you don't go, my brother did not serve a mission. Mm-hmm. He served this football mission. Mm-hmm. So, you know, played football at the University of Washington. So I got a letter in the mail, and I don't remember if I must have had interviews with a stake and so forth, but uh, I got a letter in the mail that said, You've been called to serve in the Texas South Spanish speaking mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
February of, you know, after I graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, it was a Spanish-speaking mission, so we were called for 27 months, uh, three months in the language training mission, and then two years after that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the mission was the greatest experience of my life. Mm. I mean, it was it was like I left a girlfriend who who did not want me to go. Mm-hmm. We were deeply and madly in love with each other. But I told her when I left, I said, this is something I have to do. And she says, well, I don't understand why you have to do it, but okay, I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't want you to go. And so in spite of all of that, we went and my mission, it's funny, I listen to people's missionary experiences, you know, missions are hard and I have no recollection of anything hard about my mission. Mm-hmm. I have recollections of some really interesting stuff mm-hmm. and some things that were scary Right. But no hard stuff, no no depression, no days that I didn't think I should be out. I, I mean, every second of my mission was like, even now makes me smile just to think yeah. about it. I had some goofy companions and nothing. I mean, it wasn't smooth all the way, right. but it just seemed like the rest of my life. There was just things went pretty well, actually. Yeah. But going on a mission was pretty special. I was... You know, general authorities are, were the ones that set you apart for your mission in those days, not your mission president. So Sterling W. Sill set me apart for mm. my mission. You know, I had the greatest mission president, Dean L. Larson, was mm. my mission president. He later became one of the seven presidents of 70. You've heard him in, in, in many general conferences speak. Mm-hmm. And when you did listen to him, he was very Elder Uppdorf-like. Okay. Uh, just had this way, this magic of, uh, I mean, I would have run through a wall for him. I mean, he was so amazing. And we, we, the way that the mission was run was so success-oriented that he put us in a way, in a position where if we followed the mission rules in the right way, success, regardless of whether you baptized or not, was yours. So um, I had a magical mission. It was like the rest of my life. So I had this life that... Justin, really, I view as magical mm-hmm. all through high school. I grew up Laguna Beach and all of the things that are, there's some great things about the beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, temptations are enormous on the beach. I used to say, I told April, I said, when we, when we got married, I said, one place we will not live is on the beach. Mm-hmm. And she says, why? I said, listen, the greatest place in the world to grow up is on the beach, but it's the worst pe- place to raise children. Mm-hmm. So, so I was literally the only missionary to leave from our ward in like 20 years, mm. literally, because the other ones succumbed to the temptations before there was time to go, or I, I'm not sure exactly why. And of yeah. course, all of that's changed now. The church is stronger there and different things mm-hmm. are going on. But so I went on my mission. I had this just a continued magical experience. I mean, everything. I mean, I look back on it, and I know there were days that were work was hard and we came in exhausted, but I never have any recollection of having any where I, oh, I'm not going out today or my companion saying we're not going to do this today or and I had some difficult companions mm-hmm. that in situations but they were just situations and then as soon as we worked those things out then everything was good again so mm. I, I think about my mission every day every day what is one memory from your mission specific memory experience that you had that comes back to you more often than, than maybe others? So I, I was called to the mission and my first companion was a wonderful guy. 
just a sweetheart of a guy, but he was to him, the hat, the cup was always half empty. And he made sure that I realized that on this mission that I was on Texas South mission, we were in the middle of the Bible belt. We were speaking Spanish, all this kind of stuff. He said, just don't plan on doing much baptizing while you're here. And he, and he kind of really talked about that quite a bit. And each time he did, I'm the kind of person that I said, well, I don't know exactly what your experience is. And I'll do everything you tell me to do because you're my senior companion, mm-hmm. but I'm definitely baptizing some people while I'm here. And I'm not sure how that's going to work, but I'm, you know, I just not going to buy into that. So I went I together about six or seven weeks and then they gave me Elder Goodwin. Elder Goodwin was, he was just this great guy who is real rich. His suits were like, I mean, just perfect. And he was a hard worker. I mean, when we went out, we used to do what he calls the storm tracking. You know, we would go up to the front door, knock on a door, and then we would, and we did a lot of tracking. We would walk around the, the walkway into the next house. Okay, so that's walking back out to this because every right. house had a long walkway. So Elder Goodwin, we would cut through people's flower gardens from door to door, okay, <laughs> instead of going on the street. And I said, won't people be mad at us? He says, maybe. He said, but we'll knock on a lot more doors this way. And he said, we're here to knock on doors so that we can uh, we can be witnesses of Christ and bring people to the gospel. And he said, the more people we see at these doors, the more people we'll influence. And so we would storm track. And really, I think only one person yelled at us the whole time we were doing it, you know, we, because most people didn't see us doing it. But it just gave me this attitude about work, you know, so, oh, because that is a different attitude. So I'd been out three months. And President Larson, and I know this was inspired because the average time for you to remain a greenie, someone's greenie, was six months. You know, you were an experienced greenie at the end of six months, but you were still a greenie. Right. And, and that was pretty high. much, yeah, that was pretty much the, I'm not sure how it works, but that's how it was in our mission. Mm-hmm. So he put me with Lauren Hatch, okay, when I'd been out three months and Lauren had been out four months Mm. and he made us co-senior companions so we used to joke about it when we first got together because we knew that neither one of us were ready to be senior companions we called ourselves we were co-junior companions (laughs) and then we would laugh about it and so he had kind of a similar experience a missionary that kind of told him things weren't going to be good and a missionary that told him that things were going to be good just like i did so we got together and both of us, now Lauren lives in Arizona. Lauren is my one of my best friends. And he's somebody that, he's the reason that we live in Arizona. Hmm. Because we used to come visit him after the mission field. But so our experience was, so we're looking at our planner and we knew what we were supposed to do each day, but we didn't really, had never done all of the things that missionaries do. And we both know that we wanted to do a little more baptizing than what people were telling us we could do. Whatever happened, the Lord needed he and I and our inexperience to be in this area at the time we needed to be there. And who knows what reason, but it couldn't have been our missionary prowess. <laughs> it was maybe our potential. I don't know. But sir, we didn't come with a, you know, like, okay, you're the two strongest missionaries. And I'm going to put you in this area because that area needs you. We didn't know exactly what happened, but literally, Justin, we were together for three months. Mm -hmm. And we worked hard 
And the Lord had certain people that he needed us to see. And we look at back on this together as companions, realizing that it really had nothing to do with us and our abilities. We take no credit for what happened. But one Sunday, we had six full families in church, Hmm. investigating the church. And there were other missionaries in the area that were going, what are you guys doing? How How is this happening? And we couldn't really explain to them how it was happening other than we got up early in the morning. We worked very hard. We contacted the right people at the right times. We were open to the spirit. We had the things that we planned to do, but we altered those plans seemingly following the inspiration of the Lord. And we baptized more people in three months than the average missionary baptized in the whole time they were in the mission field. Hmm. And when we were, when we separated, you know, because by then, you know, you know, you always separate. Uh, we both became district leaders, you know, and how those things work mm-hmm. to president Larson leadership positions weren't very important. He mm-hmm. actually saw them as a detriment to missionary work. Mm-hmm. You know, he was very cautioned us. Matter of fact, whenever he would have a, a zone leader, zone leaders would be a zone leader for a period of time. And then they would always been re- be released back into the mission community yeah, right. uh, with no leadership positions. And he said, your job here is to be a missionary. It's not to be a zone leader. And I don't want people thinking that somehow because you're a zone leader, you're a better missionary or, or you deserve it or whatever, you know, and I don't want people aspiring to that. He said, the reason we're here is to do missionary work. And sometimes zone leaders, because of their responsibilities, can't do as much missionary work as they need to do to keep them engaged with the spirit. Right. And that was just kind of how it was. So, so in our mission, we didn't really look at it, but we, we never had the same success apart as we did together. Although we both had really uh, meaningful missions, but we, that time that we were together was truly, we were, I, we were completely invested in service to our father in heaven. And he was guiding our efforts to a group of people who were ready for us to come, not, not us in any way. We look at now, we even look at each other and go, what, what happened there? And we know that it was for whatever reason, we were the right set of missionaries to be guided to serve. So the one you asked if there was one experience, mm-hmm. uh, we were together, and this was early in this companionship, where we had committed ourselves to this kind of concept of storm tracking. Mm-hmm. And we decided, because there were certain people in Texas that wanted to argue about everything, you know, where you knock on a certain door, there's a lot of Baptists there that want to engage you, but they don't want to listen to you. They just want to engage you. And we saw that as time-wasting. And we said, we will only spend, I mean, unless we both agree at the door that we're going to continue a conversation, uh, two minutes is the longest we'll spend with somebody unless they invite us in. So... We were going down the street, and we knocked on Brother Heeman's door. Brother Heeman, we didn't know his name, but it was the first time as a missionary companionship where the Spirit completely took hold of us, unitedly, and said, you stay here, even though you don't want to. Mm -hmm. Because this guy, we talked for two hours at this guy's door. 
two hours. And we never did that before or after that it turned out. I mean, the Hemans and I are still close friends and many, you know, all of the things that have happened. And it's just this wild story. I won't go into a lot of detail about it, but we knew then that if we would just give ourselves, do the things that we were supposed to do, be in the places we were supposed to be, and then listen to the spirit that father in heaven, the savior had things that he wanted us to do for the good of other people. When we talk to Brother Heman today, we don't say, aren't you lucky we came by? We say, we are so grateful that the Spirit guided us to you and that you were able to hear it and we heard it as well. And that one experience comes to my mind with great regularity. And I do see Lauren quite regularly. We're, we're so close. So. Oh, I mean, I've never missed one of his kids anything, and he's never missed one of my kids anything. That's really neat. Very neat that you've uh, been able to build that relationship and had those experiences and, and been able to have real-life application of trusting in the Lord and allowing Him to guide your actions and words and everything in that situation. Now, tell me a little bit about you know, that transition from mission to married life. What happened there? So came home from my mission. I decided right at the last six months that I wanted to see if I could make a basketball team. So I started working out in the mission field. Went to Ricks because I figured that was the only place to do it. Now, and Ricks remember, is I what, was, uh, in, in Idaho, correct? Yes, Ricks in Idaho. Now it's BYUI, mm-hmm. BYU-Idaho. But at the time, it was Ricks College. Right. And uh, went up there to play basketball and had a great experience for a year roomed with one of my uh, missionary, wasn't a companion, but somebody that we I knew in the mission field. And he lived in Rexburg, Idaho, uh, Rigby, Idaho, and school mm-hmm. is in Rexburg. And we were uh, roommates. Now, he is a 70 right now, one of the 70. And I think, I think he this year he'll turn 70, so he'll, he'll leave the 70. That's Brad Foster. So I had a great experience uh, at, at school, came back, Needed to work for six months to make some money so I could go back to school. And during that six months, April had come from New York to visit her brother, who uh, was a member of the church and lived in Southern California. He sent many sets of missionaries to April, but she was still not a member. Mm-hmm. Uh, her mom, her mom was resistant to her joining the church, and uh, she came out to visit him. And while she was here, she went through her third or fourth set of missionaries and joined the church. And we met in an institute uh, activity about two or three weeks after she joined the church. And uh, it was the best day of my life. The second that I saw her, I was, she has such a wonderful spirit about her. Mm. She's a beautiful girl and very striking, but there was something special about her and and continues to be. She is so, um, uh, she just has this aura about her. When she walks into a room, if there's 10 kids in the room, every single kid is drawn to her. She has that magical effect on on the innocents because she herself is very innocent. So we, 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 um, we started dating and uh, dated for about six months. And now, now she'd only been a member of the church for six months. Mm-hmm. And I asked her to marry me. And... We wanted to get married so we could go back up to BYU, but we couldn't wait the year before she could be married. And so we were married civilly. 
And again, back in those days, it was no big deal. So we, we got married and then went up to BYU. And the, within a few days of our year anniversary in the church, we were sealed in the, uh, in the Provo Temple. But no, of course, it was quiet. It was Lauren Hatch, my good friend, was there. And my cousin who lived there up at BYU with her husband was at the ceiling. Uh-huh. Uh, but of course, my mom didn't, you know, couldn't go to the temple, and so she wasn't there. And April's mom couldn't go to the temple, and so she uh-huh. wasn't there. It was just two college kids who had been married for a year that got sealed in the temple. But right. that day, that day that we got sealed in the temple, the most glorious day. Uh-huh of my life. And I've had lots of really great days, but that one in particular, because now, and we were so in love and so, you know, and, and she, and she was a new member of the church, but she had really, I mean, she was Mormon through and through. I mean, she completely embraced every aspect of the gospel from the day she joined the church and has never wavered a tiniest little bit. I tell you, I reverence in a big way converts. Because I've always wondered, you know, if I weren't a member of the church from birth, how I would have dared. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, I think I would have been drawn to the church. One of the things that drew me to the church was that it convinced me for sure is that the church runs in a way that makes perfect sense and that no one else in the world would run it that way. Mm. You know, it's, it's one of those things that you go, mm. well, this can't really work, but it does work. And the reason it works is because that's, the Savior's way. Well, April, she completely embraced all of that. So everything that she's done in the church, because she didn't go to primary, she didn't go to young women's and young men's and, you know, those things. So everything she's been asked to do, she always thinks, well, how can I teach Sunday school to people if I've never been to Sunday school? I said, well, honey, we're all converts. Uh You're, You're a convert in your way and I'm a convert in my way. But yeah. none of us are qualified to do any of this until after we get the calling from someone who is inspired to do that. And then we're strengthened by the spirit to do the thing that we're not qualified to do. Mm. And I said, the only difference between you is that you didn't know that you were going to do all these things. And I did know I was going to do all these things, but I <laughs> still know that I'm asked to do something. I'm not qualified or really can't do it until after I'm asked to do it. And then somehow we figure out a way to do it. When Reuben Eager was the bishop, when uh, April was the young women's president, oh. and uh, we were very close to Reuben, and yeah. Reuben said to me, and he'd been around a lot, you know, he was so involved in young men's and young women's and that kind of stuff. He said, "Well, I don't know about you being a convert, April, but I can tell you this: you're the best young women's president I've ever met." And and of course, they're all great young women. Young women. Oh, yeah. She was she she is particularly accomplished at doing anything she's asked to do, but everything she's asked to do, she thinks she can't do. Yeah, she's a wonderful girl. So anyway, we got to, that's how we got hooked up together and, and uh, led to some really neat things. You know, her mother eventually joined the church. Her stepdad joined the church. My mom eventually got her endowments. Mm-hmm. And some re- really neat stuff happened. And right. we accidentally raised these four kids that turned out to be pretty good kids. Awesome. In spite of us. <laughs> yeah, I, that's how I feel a lot of times with my own kids. Uh, they're muddling through life in spite of my own efforts to drag them down from time to time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, they don't give much training to parents, do they? No, no. In fact, that kind of leads me to the to this next thing that, I, that I'd love to talk to you about. Now, you're a grandparent, correct? Correct. You have grandchildren. 20. 
20 of them. You've got lots of grandchildren. And, and you briefly mentioned the four kids that you have. So maybe you can dig a little bit deeper than this question is as you answer it if you choose to. But how is being a parent different from being a grandparent? And hmm. some of the experiences you have with that. Yeah, yeah. So being a parent, you're completely invested. Now, everybody's different, okay? But there's the feeling of responsibility for your children that's unique to that period of your life. And you're learning as you go. A person once said to me that children are somewhat like pancakes. You always throw the first pancake away. <laughs> because it always sticks and doesn't turn out. And she said, that's often the case with your first child as well. Because uh, I'm a first child, so maybe pan- that's what happened. <laughs> exactly. Now, I'm the oldest, mm-hmm. and I never, I never, but my mom may have wondered about it. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so we had Angie and Karen very close. We, it took us a long time to get pregnant with Angie, about three years. We thought there were some medical problems with me. Kind of a funny story. We got married and moved into, uh, we, we left BYU and moved into Fountain Valley, California, into a, uh, a ward where there were like, there was this apartment complex. And in that apartment p- complex, there were like 40 newly married LDS couples. Mm. And th- they had four pools and four jacuzzis. It was a beautiful place, Shakewood Apartments. And, uh, and none of us had kids. And so every night after work, whatever we were doing, whatever work we had, we'd all go out and swim in the swimming pool and sit in the jacuzzi and talk for hours, literally hours, sit in the jacuzzi and talk for hours. Mm. The, the boys, we would play Marco Polo when no one was in the pool and the okay. girls would come and would look at us being jerks, you know. Right, right. I mean, we were, we, we were here, we were, you know, 21, 22, 23-year-old men. We're out there playing like kids. Yeah. So we had no responsibilities. It turns out that uh, the Scandinavians used jacuzzis uh, as birth control mm. because sperm cannot live at body temperature. Well, a jacuzzi is way hotter than 98.6. Well, about that time, we moved out of Shakewood. And then three months later, we got pregnant. And when yes. we came back to the doctor, he put two and two together. He says, oh, yeah, well, did you were spending time in a jacuzzi. And oh, yeah, that's the reason. So in any event, it took us a long time to have Angie because we were worried about it. So we weren't very careful and had Karen right. really soon afterwards. Uh-huh. And then Steve came like five years later. And then we wanted more children, but we just didn't have more children. And uh, when April was 39, she got pregnant with Bill. Yeah. So there's a long distance between Angie. There's 12 years, 12 years. Angie's 12 years older than Jill is. <clears throat> so they really hardly knew each other. You know, by the time Angie was in high school, Jill's six years old. Angie's right. off to get in, in college and getting married, Jill seven. But we raised Jill. She was like an only child because of all of the practice that we had on Angie and Karen and Steve. And all of them have scars and wounds from me. <laughs> talking too much and being too strict or not strict enough or whatever the things were. And they've questioned me a time or two, well, how come Jill got away with this or that? You know, And I go, well, honey, did you want us to make the same mistake with her that we made with you? <laughs> I said, you guys, we practiced on you and we got it a little bit better. And so the long and the short of it is that as parents, we were probably too strict with our first ones and learned a more gentle way of uh, living with Steve a little bit and with Jill for sure. And then with grandchildren, we, we were concerned and we always 
do what we feel that we can do to influence. So we're still aware of that we can have some influence, mm-hmm. but we also know that that uh, ours isn't the only way to do things. And if our children have chosen to raise their children slightly differently than they were raised in the house, they're not an affront to us or because there's spouses involved. So we're very supportive. We love the grandchildren equally to how much we loved our own children, but we are more relaxed about what goes on in their lives. And we're not very re- overreactive to the incidents of things that come up. We, one, one of the things in our lives that we, I think it's a kind of a, a family belief system is that not to overreact to the here and now that April and I say this at least once or twice a week to one another. Remember, honey, life is long. And, and if things don't seem to be going just the direction you want them to at the time, that not to give up hope, but to remember that life is long. Hmm. So that's a quite a bit different than what a lot of people say these days. Life is short, live it up, you know? So, so tell me, why you do that a little bit differently? <laughs> well, I think it's the reality of what, what our experience has been. So we raised uh, four kids. And so they all picked uh, what on the surface appeared to be uh, good spouses. Our kids right now, all, all of our children are active in the church. And, you know, I'm pretty, pretty happy. So that, that long view and of course, I don't compare myself to Father in Heaven, right. but I do realize that the long view is important. I have another little tiny story to tell okay. in that regard. So I told you my mom was a rascal uh-huh. and separated herself from the church, and she had some word of wisdom issues for many years. And at the end of her life, uh, she got some visual problems where she had to come live near April and I because we were the only support system that were available to her. So she lived three miles from us in an assisted living place. We wanted her to live with us, but she would not live with her. She said, I'm not doing that. I like, it's, it's too much of a burden for you. And I want to have this, but I'd love to be close to you. And I love you for all that you do. And I told her, I said, no, look, mom. We go to church every Sunday. You are welcome to come with us. You don't have to come. And whether you come or not won't make one bit of difference to me in terms of how we love you and how you'll be engaged in the family. She said, oh, no, I'd love to come to church with you. And she did. And even though she didn't live in the ward, they kept her. Mm -hmm. She got visiting teachers from our ward. She actually accepted the calling to be a visiting teacher. Mm -hmm. And after three or four years of that, of coming to church every day and not having a word of wisdom problem anymore and doing all the things you're supposed to do, I said to her mom, you think maybe you ought to think about going to the temple. Mm. And, she, and she said, she's kind of stunned. And she said, Rusty, do you, do you think I could go to the temple? Because Satan has worked his, uh, his greatest trick on her. And then mm. he had convinced her that she could never be worthy to go to the temple. Mm. So I kind of laughed. I said, well, mom, I said, you are, and this is the truth. Justin, she was the most Christian person I ever have known. Mm. 100% service oriented. If you had a problem, she was there for you. If she had an acquaintance that needed something, money or help uh, emotionally or whatever it was, she was there for them. She was that kind of a person. I said, so you're the most Christian person I've ever met. I said, have you killed anybody I don't know about? (laughs) 
And she said, well, I've been tempted a time or two, but I've never done anything about it. And I said, well, mom, except for that one thing, I think that you could go to the temple. I called up my cousin who was very, very close to my mom. She was the one that when I had to give a talk, that my mom would call my cousin Paula, who was much older than I was, to come down and write the talk for me because my mom didn't feel qualified to write the talk because she was inactive. So Paula was very close to my mom. I called Paula up and I said, Paula, you got to come down to Arizona next month. Mom's going through the temple. And she said, Shirley's going through the temple? (laughs) Nothing could keep me further away. So at 82 years old, my mom got her endowments taken out. Now let's pull ourselves back a little bit. My grandmother, who had eight children, Mm-hmm. One of those children separated her from the church, separated from the church in early and late adolescence and early mm-hmm. adulthood. And then my grandma passed away when my mom was in her 50s, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. So my grandma never got to see my mom take out her endowments, mm-hmm. but, but she did. And I know grandma was aware of it. And I know there was a celebration in heaven. I believe all that stuff. However, life is long. So when you have a situation and you don't see how it can ever get any better and you don't know where it's going to go, maybe you're right. Maybe on this earth, you won't see the final results. But my grandma lived till she was 90 and never saw her youngest daughter endowed in the temple. Nevertheless, her, her child was endowed in the temple and the things that that child, that mother did in her life, April and I and my brother and his wife, a great legacy that my grandma could be proud of, even though my mom was inactive in the church. So we use this mantra quite often, life is long. And we think of my mom when we do it. Mm. And so we've got situations in our life, even today, that are not ideal from a parent-child standpoint. But we never, ever are angry or we never, ever give up hope. I like that. Life is long. So Rusty, I want to, I want to share with you one of the, well, it's definitely the, the interaction that I have with you that's most memorable in my life. And it's a hinge pin moment in my life. It's one of those that, that kind of went, made me go, Hmm, I've made a step in my life somewhere. So I served a mission and, and I grew, I, I lived in the same uh, church congregation, the same ward as you. Um, through most of my youth, and I served a mission in in Romania, and and the culture in the church is when we, especially as youth, address adults, we call them brother Wisbowski, sister Wisbowski, whatever it may be. And the day I came home from my mission and reported back to the ward, I went up to you, or you actually approached me, and I said, "Hey, brother Wisbowski," and you said, "Call me Rusty." <laughs> And, and, and I, and I thought I can't do that, but for whatever reason that has stuck in my head as one of those, it's a transition into adulthood for me. It's a step Hmm. that happened there where someone who I respect and love and, and, uh, uh, have honor for and, and addressed you that way with that respect and honor said, Hey, guess what, son, we're on equal ground now call me rusty. So is that something that you typically do or have done with others? Or is that just something that is special to me because it is, or, or tell me a little bit about that, that process or that thought. Hmm. 
So it actually is something that I always do. Mm. I always do. And just so that you're aware of it, Mm -hmm. uh, when I do it, it is routine. But for you and I, it was special. Yeah. So your mom and dad have always been, I served with your dad as a home teacher for a while. Mm -hmm. And I really admire and respect him Mm -hmm. for what he's done with his life. And I've just felt, I I worked with your mom when I was in the bishopric. She was the mission or she was the primary president. She was just this amazing primary president. Right. But I've always felt real close to your family Mm. and have and watched you through the years and have always admired you and Mm. the way you deport yourself and the way that I saw you uh, interacting with the other younger priesthood holders, Mm. you know, um, Ben Schill and, and, and those kind of things. I just saw things that, that I admired in what you were doing. So I do remember telling you to call me Rusty. But for me, the idea of um, being Brother Wisbowski is very important to me. Mm. And also being comfortable with a returned missionary. And I always use that return missionary thing. I think, okay, now this, at this point, really, I'm a little older than you. But mm. in terms of life experience and things and so forth, we can be friends on a first name basis. Uh, I've got to joke because a lot of people really resist it. I mean, they'll, they'll continue to call you Brother Wisbaski. And I said, well, if you keep calling me Brother Wisbaski, that's fine. And I'm not upset at all with you, but I may start calling you Brother Barton. <laughs> and, and usually that brings a laugh. And because it takes two or three times of somebody when they've been home from a mission to go from calling you Brother Wisbaski to calling you Rusty. Yeah. But I'm a, Rus- I'm a Rusty. And I've always liked that better than Brother Wisbowski. When I meet, and with a name like Wisbowski, oftentimes uh, Wisbowski is a tongue twister. Mm-hmm. So I'll introduce my I'm Brother Wisbowski. Please call me Rusty. Yeah. But I do remember telling you that. And it was uh, done with uh, a special fondness. Mm. And the reason is because I think that you kind of earned it. And mm. I don't think I deserve any more than just a Rusty. Mm. That's real important to me. Thank you for sharing that process that, uh, that I went through. But like I said, that is a meaningful moment in my life where I had, it felt like I took a step uh, further into life, into adulthood at that moment. Sure. So. And you and I have, we've always had this kind of inquire in different places. So, you know, I got a chance to watch you raise a family yeah. and watch, watch all that dynamic. So it's kind of fun for us. Yeah, thank you. So I have a couple more questions before we start closing this up. One of them is you mentioned earlier that you've had a boat for 25 years. I've never had a boat and I don't, I don't anticipate that I will ever have a boat. I, I just can't do that. I, I, the, the phrase, the greatest two days in a boat owner's life for the day they buy it and the day they sell it, it you know, sticks with me. But do you have a <laughs> boat story? where there was a big storm that came up on you or a scary situation while you're on the boat or, you know, something like that where the boat is central to this potentially life-changing story that you had. <laughs> yeah. So we, uh, we owned the boat with my nephew. Mm-hmm. He owned half the boat. We owned half the boat. 
my nephew is April's nephew, my nephew by marriage. Mm -hmm. He's 10 years younger than we are. We had our first baby when we were 27. He had his first baby when he was 18. Mm -hmm. So, and he had four children, but because of the age differences, his oldest child is one year older than my oldest child. His next daughter is one year younger than Karen. His next daughter is one year younger than Steve. And his youngest child is one year older than Jill. Hmm. So they moved to Arizona after we did. Mike uh, is a great guy. Hmm. You may have seen him at a few of the wedding things around. He used to be a DJ and would do the music at the different functions. But So we owned this boat together for many years. Both of us are very aware of the danger of a boat. And we had absolute rules that everybody followed. You never, there are certain things on a boat that these are things you don't do, mm-hmm. where you put your foot and where you need. So, we, so in all the years we owned the boat, and that's my four children and all of their fun and his four children and all of the fun, we've never had a bad accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, never an accident. When, we, when we're water skiing, if you're near anybody in the water, the boat's turned off. You never leave the boat in idle. You turn it off. Mm-hmm. So nobody can make a mistake, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And and we followed those rules, absolutely. But occasionally when you're on the water, of course, things can happen. Mm-hmm. And the most memorable boating risk happened when at Lake Powell is notorious for unbelievably high winds, mm-hmm. you know, 40, 50 mile an hour winds. And we were on a houseboat and we were tied up and it literally looked like the world was going to end mm. and it was determined that I would take all of the women and the children on the boat uh, on about a 10 mile boat ride back to uh, Waweep, uh, mm-hmm. the marina off of the houseboat for their safety and put them in a motel there in page. Mm-hmm. So I've got, I've got me, my wife, Mike's wife, and eight children in the boat with us. Wow. And the weather turned bad as we were going. So when we left, it looked like it was going to be bad. We felt we should get everybody to shore. And in the middle of the boat ride, the storm hit. Mm. And we were going up and over the waves and crashing down and water over the bow of the little boat. Now, it's a little 20-foot boat. We're not talking about a big boat here, just a ski boat. Right. And I have never prayed harder in my life. I said, well, I said, Father in heaven, I do not mind if I die, but can you at least let me live long enough to get these people to shore? And I mean, because I literally, literally thought, and and of course, we should never have embarked. We should have stayed where we were. We would have been better off. At least it was land there. Uh-huh. But, you know, you make choices and once in a while you make a choice and Mother Nature says, well, this might have been a good choice 10 minutes ago. It's not a good choice now. Yeah. So uh, very harrowing. Things turned out just great. We did get to shore and the other guys uh, stayed on the houseboat and we were worried about them all night long, but it turned out that they were just eating chili and playing card games and it was no big deal. <laughs> and the rest of us were drowned rats. Have you ever have you ever had a situation where the coincidence of meeting somebody in some place is the odds are so long against it that you would think, Well, how could this possibly happen? Yes. Um, you know, you're, you're at Disneyland and you run into somebody and you go, how could, what are the pot, what are the chances? And we always, you know, that's, those things happen. Right. So, but on that night, okay, 
Mm-hmm. Uncle John is my oldest uncle. Okay, yeah. he's much older than my mom. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen Uncle John in 15 years, I'll bet. So I dragged, I and mean, we looked like drowned rats. We mm. parked the boat, and then we took them up to this motel. I can't even remember which one it was to get them into a room for the night. And all of a sudden, April, she just looked like, I mean, her hair was not even pulled back. It was just all over, scattered all over her face. You know, we were just in this harrowing situation. (laughs) And she looked over and there's my Uncle John in a car. And she goes, Uncle John. And Uncle John hardly knew April, but she Mm -hmm. recognized him. He looked at her like she was some homeless woman coming over to get some money from him, you know. But they were going from California to Utah on a trip. What are the chances that we could have at that time run into my uncle there? Wow. So we had a great big life. And so after this situation where I, you know, thought I was my, I killed the whole family. Right. We have this laughter and things that there's my uncle sitting in this car wow. and they were very elderly and were all taken back that we were seeing them. It was just kind of crazy. So, wow. Anyway, and you know, that boat business, you know, the worst yeah. day of my life uh-huh. was selling that boat. Oh, we had, we had more fun on that boat, Justin. It was not a big boat, but uh-huh. you know, I, and this is the honest truth. And I told you, we made a thousand trips. Yeah. We owned the boat for, and I'm sure there were close to a thousand trips. Maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm over exaggerating. We would go three or four times a summer, uh, every week. And then we would go for two weeks every year, you know, and over a 25 year period. I'm not sure what the number would be. It was a lot of trips. Mm-hmm. Never, ever did we take a trip on the boat, no matter who we took and what the ages were, that everybody who was on the trip didn't enjoy it. Mm. That was so fun. I had so much fun. So you take a baby and a college age student and you go out on the boat for the day. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you come home and the college kid has a suntan and the baby got to play with uh, crawdads. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like just this. It was, so we loved it. Now, I'm a boat person. I'm a water person. April's not. Right. So we didn't have a lot of money, but we, we shared the expense of the boat with another family who had mm-hmm. the exact same intentions that we did. And we, so we did love the boat. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And matter of fact, April and I regularly say to one another, don't we wish we still had the boat? Mm, interesting. We love we loved it so much. Matter of fact, right now we're trying. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be doing some. Uh, our young grandkids are coming to stay with us next week, and we're thinking of going up and renting a pontoon boat, take them out on the boat for the day, and that kind of stuff. So, anyway, you get me off onto a tangent, John. Oh, that should be fun. Two more questions. First one: If you could boil down who you are and your characteristics, your personal characteristics into a handful of words, what are those, you know, those core words, those core values or principles that would define you and what's important mm-hmm. to you? So that's a tough one. Mm-hmm. On purpose. So, <laughs> it, it, yeah. what, I'm, what I'm attempting to do in my life uh, is to live a Christ-centered life that allows me to be used in the best possible way to serve other people. And in doing that, uh, one of the things that April and I attempted, you know, we're empty nesters now. We have 20 grandkids. There's lots of things to do, lots of choices. We try to not lose sight of our responsibility 
to our local ward family. Mm-hmm. Uh, our family is the most important thing to us, but very close second to that is our ward family mm-hmm. and to people in general. So we try to always be where we're supposed to be when we're supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. With this thought, if you don't go to a ward camp out, and you should have gone to the ward camp out because you might have had a minute to interact with some member of the ward who, for whatever reason, is drawn to you as an individual, mm-hmm. and you're not there, and that person doesn't get that interaction, and that person later goes inactive in the church, then you've missed not just a chance to interact with somebody, but you've missed the opportunity to, in some way, be a tool to help that person's eternal progression. And we take that responsibility very seriously, not thinking that if we're not there, things won't be great, but thinking that we don't know why we maybe should be there. There's times when you'll hear later on, for instance, you tell me the story about me saying to you, call me Rusty. And somehow that's significant to you. Well, I was hoping, and I hope each time I have that interaction with the return missionary, because I do respect them and I want them to know that. And part of that respect is that. But I had no idea really that uh, that meant something to you. And I'm glad that it did and whatever that maybe is small in terms of somebody. I mean, you've heard stories like somebody at school says to somebody, Hey, how are you doing today? Somebody that you've never said how you're doing today. Mm -hmm. And 10 years later runs into that person. And the person says, I just wanted to let you know that the day that you asked me how I was doing, even though we've never really visited very much, I was on my way home to commit suicide that day. Mm -hmm. And when you showed me a kindness, I changed my mind. I mean, I I don't want to say that every interaction we have with someone is of that nature. So when you ask what attributes and what we're trying to do is we're trying to to live our lives so that we can be tools in the hands of the Savior to help other people. As an individual, I try never, ever to judge another person. Um, I mean, I take it so far in April, we kind of laugh about it. If somebody cuts me off in traffic and it happens occasionally mm-hmm. and I always go, Oh gosh, you know, I'll bet that guy has got something going on in his life. And, you know, maybe it's just found out that he's got cancer or his, his mom is sick or a kid got killed last last week or something. Well, she says, why do you do that? I said, I'm doing it to, teach myself that what good is judging another person for a bad reason. Uh Maybe he's just a jerk who cut me off because he didn't like the look of my car or something, or I don't know, but I can think that and I can be mad and I can honk back at him and make hand gestures at him. But I said, just easier if we learn not to ever be judgmental of other people. So we try not to judge other people. And if we find that people have fallen short in some area, we try to make an excuse for what they did. And then we try to put ourselves in a position where they know that we still care for them. And if there's anything that we can do for them, we'd be glad to do it for them. So 
being kind and gentle, and that's not my nature, Justin. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm a nice guy, but I have been prone to make judgments in my life, and I've found that to be very counterproductive. So kindness and being not judgmental and trying to take what I do in life so that I put myself where I should be when I'm supposed to be there. I mean, so we're at a place of where we can really make decisions. We don't have to go to church. So much people aren't really, I don't have a calling that requires those kind of things. We try to be at the things we're supposed to be at, do the things we're supposed to do. Yeah. And of course there is nothing negative about being kind, um, being gentle, not being judgmental and hoping that people treat you the same way kind of a thing. So I mean, yeah. I'm still working on those things. Believe me. Yeah. Any other words of wisdom that you would like to pass down to any listeners, myself or future generations of your posterity? Words of wisdom. I don't know, Justin. <laughs> The power of the church is in the individual commitment to the Savior. And the individual commitment to the Savior is our response to the things we're asked to do by him. And that's and it's not anything else. It's that individual thing that makes the church the stone cut out of the mountain without hands and rolls forth because people are taking those actions. And I guess if I could share or encourage anybody that might listen to this at all, it's that the Savior lives. He guides the church. We don't always understand exactly all of the things that are going on because that's not our position. But the more that we can do in our lives to put our lives in concert with his wants and desires. And that's us as individuals taking the responsibility to do the things that we should do to draw ourselves closer to him will bring us eternal happiness. And um, that was what I would hope for as a, uh, as a person and that I can be that and hope that anybody that might in some way, listen to any of these words and take as something to be encouraged to do would as individuals find out what the Savior wants you to do and do it. Thank you very much, Rusty. I have really enjoyed the last uh, couple hours as we've been talking. This has been fun. Well, Justin, this was uh, cathartic for me. Good. And I'm almost laughing to think that someone might listen to me rambling along. And (laughs) your, your questions are very good at causing people who, at least for me, I felt very comfortable. Good. And uh, and now and now I'm wondering what I said, and I hope it uh, hope it doesn't make me look too goofy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're all goofy. So there you have it. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation, and I may have to do a follow up conversation with Rusty, as between the time that we had this conversation and now, he had a heart attack and a quadruple bypass surgery. So I want to kind of dig in a little bit more onto his catchphrase of life is long and see what types of changes may have um, happened because of these experiences he's had in the last few weeks. Anyways, once again, I hope that you have enjoyed this conversation. And 
If you or anyone you know would like to share your experiences of life in a long-form conversation somewhat like this, please send me an email at knowandodopodcast at gmail.com. As always, my experience is that wisdom and peace in this life come from knowing Jesus Christ and doing as he would have me do.